0: While our kids are leaving, if you have the scriptures, um, I'm going to be looking at a number of verses, just a few, in Matthew chapter 11. And uh, I know that subjective feelings can be deceitful, but it seems to me that the Spirit is at work this morning in a way that I haven't necessarily felt in a while. And I'm praying that that continues through the teaching of His Word, too. We're in the middle of a series of messages that are looking at the names of God in Scripture, and and I've said it before and I'll say it again, that names embody truth, uh, truth that's intended to impact our lives. And um, as I think about the name of Jesus, I, I think I can say that of all the names in the Bible, that one draws the most conflict and the most controversy, the name of Jesus, Generally speaking, people are okay if we talk about God or the even more generic um, higher power, quote-unquote. But as soon as you say the name of Jesus or you pray in the name of Jesus, especially in a public setting, people tend to break out in hives and uh, react a little bit, and they feel on edge, like we're going to offend everybody because we call on or we pray in the name of Jesus. Um, and I think some of you have felt that, um, especially here in California, where there's a far more liberal bent to things and, and not wanting to offend, and so the name of Jesus is almost a hush word, not supposed to say it in public. I think it's encouraging to note that that is um, not a new phenomenon. During Jesus' own life, his name was controversial. Controversial. Uh, his name was the talk of the town in in Jer- Jerusalem. I mean, he he gained the attention of kings, governors, councils, and eventually emperors, uh, emperors in the in the Roman world. Um, that because of his name and those who followed and continued to profess his name, um, there were conspiracies, and there were anti-Christian legislation that was passed, and Christians were put in prison, and some were killed because they held to and spoke and refused to be silent about the name of Jesus. It was just as controversial, if not more then, than it is now. I also think it's important to recognize that just in terms of the power of the name, that for almost three centuries, the Roman Empire, which was the most powerful institution on the face of the planet during that time, did their best to eradicate the people who spoke the name, even with systematic exterminations. And yet, at the end of the day, um, Rome itself ended up bowing the knees through the Emperor Constantine, making it the state religion, acquiescing to the power of the name. It has always been a controversial name. Sometimes it's controversial because Those who profess to be followers of Jesus act like buffoons and earn him a bad reputation. Burning the Qurans in public, bad reputation. That's not, um, I think, what the Lord Jesus would have us do in bringing the gospel to Muslims. Um, But on a deeper level, uh, what makes Jesus such a controversial figure is his own teachings. If you get close enough to them, you realize that you either have to take them or leave them. Uh, You reject or you accept. I mean, his teachings require that. They are absolute. He claims absolute in his teaching. And I want to look at that this morning um, in the text of uh, here, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. The name of Jesus literally means um, Yahweh saves. It's a combination of a verb and the sacred name of Yahweh. Yahweh saves, that's Jesus' name, or in Hebrew it's pronounced Yeshua. Uh, Jesus shares the name, same name as Joshua, the son of Nun, in the Old Testament. The same one who led the people of Israel into the promised land, brought down the walls of Jericho, and defeated the Canaanites. He was, a, he was Yahweh's salvation back then. And Jesus shares that name of Joshua, or Yeshua, or the kind of the Greek pronunciation is Jesus or Jesus. In this particular text, um, Jesus is going to claim something about himself in his own teachings, that I think um, requires a person to reject or accept. Let me read the passage, and then let's kind of break it apart and understand more what embodies his name. Verse 25, Jesus says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And when he talks about these things, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the gospel of the kingdom, who Jesus is. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He goes on in verse 27 to say, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he says this, Come to me. This is the part we're familiar with. A lot of us memorize this as kids. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That's that thing that connects an animal to a cart. Um, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those verses that I just read are an amazing contrast, which I hope you will see. What's important for us in understanding this passage is if you back up to the verses immediately before verse 25, you'll realize that Jesus has pronounced judgments on cities who have rejected him. Judgments, he's woe to you, and he names the cities because he performed miracles in those cities, authenticating who he was and validating that his message was true, and yet they chose not to believe him, so they rejected him, so he his judgments. Those are the verses immediately preceding verse 25 and following, and Jesus here in verse 25 does something that I think, if you pause to think about it, does, does something unexpected. He's just pronounced judgment on cities that have rejected him. And what he does is he doesn't vent frustration or even lament, but he actually praises his father. In the midst of rejection, this is what he says. He says, at that time, rereading, I thank you, Father. Just right after words of judgment and rejection, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things From the wise and understanding, reveal them to children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. In the face of rejection, Jesus is actually praising his Father. And the reason for this is because he knows that the Father is the one, ultimately, God is the one, ultimately, who hides and reveals the truth. The whole idea of getting who Jesus is, coming to a, a, a believing, convinced, persuaded knowledge of him, is something that remains in the hands of God himself. Now, these verses, misunderstood, may lead you to believe that God is unfair, and and that is not the truth. When it says that he's hidden these things from the wise and understanding, speaking there of human arrogance and pride. People who think they know it all, people who are smug, people who saw Jesus and said, "Eh, I just don't buy it. What he's saying is that God hid the truth from them as an act of judgment, not unfairness. God is uh, voraciously opposed To the pride of man and so it's a judgment he hides but then he is pleased to reveal in a pure act of grace that no one on earth deserves to have the truth revealed to them but God is pleased to reveal it to those who are desperate those who are needy those who know they're broken those who are looking for the light those who are willing to say teach me That's what he's saying, and it's in the context of that that he he says, I praise you, Father, because that revealing gift is in your hands. And these people rejected it because you hid them, hid it from them in an act of, of, of judgment. That tells us something very, very important that completely upsets our sense of human pride. And that is that the revelation of who Jesus is that is a revelation to the heart. This isn't just knowledge in general. The revelation of who Jesus is to the heart is a gift of grace, not the result of human reasoning. That is, God has to come along and say, this is who my son is. And as a result, faith is called forth. In fact, one, I think, could argue, and I'm going to argue it, that faith is the irresistible response to revelation. That God says, here he is. He's worthy, he's real, he's believable. He communicates to the heart and the heart goes, I believe, at least on some level. And that's what begins the journey of the Christian life. But understand, that is something in the hands of God. Not in the hands of us. Um, That's why it's a humbling truth. God is the one who graciously reveals um, as a gift. Coming to know who Jesus is a gift. And when you come to him, that's an evidence that he has opened your eyes. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a pride-crushing truth about the way in which God works to reveal who his son is. That part is controversial enough. But what's even more controversial is that Jesus, in the verses that follow this, is going to insist that those reigns of sovereign grace, that is, he's in control, he's the one who hides and reveals, have been handed over Exclusively to the Son, that is to Jesus, the one whose name Yeshua. Let's look at this these verses in verses just verse 27. In verse 27, summed up, I think Jesus teaches that he is the sovereign, that is the absolute ruler, controller, and exclusive revealer of who God is. Sovereign and exclusive revealer of who. God is. And this is what gets Jesus in trouble, back then as well as today. Now, as I read verse 27, I want you to keep three words in your mind. Um, That is the word sovereign, he's all-controlling, the word exclusive, which is a danger word in our culture, and um, the last one, reveal. So, sovereign, exclusive, and reveal. And tell me if point one up there in yellow is not completely supported by verse 27 and those three words. Jesus says, All things, all inclusive, nothing left out. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. In other words, the same absolute sovereignty that God his Father wielded, he has handed over to the Son. And no one knows That's an exclusion statement. No one knows, has a proper or full or perfect knowledge of the son except the father. And no one knows, that's another exclusive statement, has full and perfect knowledge of the father except the son. It's exclusive. The son is the only one who knows God perfectly and fully. And then the next statement, again, is difficult for the 21st century American mind to handle. Because it goes on to say, um, the Father accepts the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. It's a sovereign choice of Jesus the Son to reveal the Father to whomever He wishes. See those three words are packed right in there. You can't get around it. This is, He's sovereign, He's the exclusive means of revealing the Father and He is the one who chooses to reveal whom He will. So, when you come to know Jesus personally and you come to really trust him, even if it's a mustard seed size faith, it's because Jesus, in an act of unspeakable grace, chose to reveal himself to you. That's a humbling truth. And it's what got him in hot water. I mean, you can't tell me this didn't, it, you just read the gospels, this stirred up all kinds of controversy in Jerusalem. He said what? Like even in 21st century mind, it's like, well, who does he think he is? Answer, he's the son of God. Uh, The earth is his and the fullness thereof. And those who dwell upon the earth and those therein. God has the sovereign right to show himself to be who he really is in the way he chooses. And that's what Jesus is saying, I'm that one, I'm, I'm the one. You can see then why you, you either have to take Jesus or leave Jesus. You come to teachings like this and he forces you into a rejection or acceptance kind of thing. Either you accept the fact that he's the sole and exclusive revelation of who God really is, or you don't. And it's that kind of stuff that he said and claimed for himself that really makes his name controversial, I think. Then, as it is now, still in our climate our culture, our society, if we're to be true to the scripture, then we have to say the way Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes or even knows the Father except through him. That's just the way the ball bounces, as my mom would say. Now that truth has about a thousand applications, but let me just remind you of three very briefly. If this is true, and I believe it is true, absolutely true, as Jesus himself says, I'm the one who shows God to you, I'm both the revealer and the revelation. I mean, it's not just that he opens the window to God, he himself is the revelation. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only who has known the Father fully. Uh, One of those applications has to do with how we think about worship, church, and our own approach to who God is. If it's true that Jesus is the sovereign and exclusive revealer and revelation of God, then he has to be central to everything. Our knowledge of him, our love of him, our communion with him, our worship of him. And when I say worship, I don't mean just the music. I mean all of life is to be lived as worship to God. And it's to be, he is to be the perpetual, continual focal point to which we come back to over and over and over again. That's at the intentional focal point of our worship. When we read the scripture, the central lens by which we understand it has to be the Son, He's the one who sheds a light on how to properly understand the whole of the Bible. When it comes to worship in terms of music, the most important thing for us to do is exalt the Son, who is the revealer and the revelation of the Father. If we're to know God, we have to know the Son. He is the window that God has established and opened and said, listen, you want to know my glory, look at my Son. And where the church de-emphasizes Jesus as supreme and central, then... I think there's a diminishing power of the Holy Spirit in that church. But where the, where, where the Son is exalted, well, that's exactly what the Father wants to do. And that's exactly what the Bible does. It exalts the name of Jesus as the sole and exclusive sovereign revelation of God. That's what we must do. That's, that's why our mission statement, by the way, is to love, live, and declare the supremacy of Jesus in all things to all people. Because He is the sovereign and exclusive revealer of God. Another thing that this truth should do to our hearts, which should keep us from this kind of arrogant, I'm a Christian, I got, I, I, I got it right, and the rest of you guys out there who don't believe, well, you guys are idiots. That is, it should, should nurture within us a spirit of humble gratitude. Listen, according to what Jesus says here, if you're here and you really believe, it's not because of you. It's because... He graciously said, here's my son, or here I am. It's a gift that he gave to you. So you can't really boast saying, hey, I got it right, because it's not a conclusion of your inductive or deductive reasoning. It's a fact of the simple, revealing grace of God he showed you. So we can't take ownership for that. We can't say, ha, hi." I, you know, I got it, you didn't. It's like, no. The only reason I'm here, the only reason I believe is Dan Decker, I'm speaking personally. Is not because my parents were Christians. It's not because I grew up in a church. It's not because my dad was a pastor. It's not because I read the Bible. It's not because I pray. I'm a believer because of the simple fact that God graciously opened my eyes, which I do not deserve. Amen. And what does that do? That just, that's a humbling reality and yet full of joy and gratitude. It's like, God, I came to the table. Why did you choose me to believe this? I, I, I don't know. It's bound up with the secret mystery of his will. But he was pleased to do it. And I'm just grateful. And that then becomes the motivation for wanting others to experience it too. And why we want to proclaim his name. Because he will open and he will hide that truth from others. Which explains why some come to faith and some don't. He's, he's in charge of that. Our responsibility is to share what we've, been, what we've received. And that's the last little sub point here. It's just a, he has to be, Jesus has to be the name. Has to be the conscious focal point also of our mission. If there's one thing I, I hope and pray for Parkway in the next 200 years, if it, it even lasts that long or if, 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 if the Lord doesn't tarry, I hope it will never stop pointing in the singular direction of that name um, and never cave to the pressures of inappropriate tolerance. And we'd be able to say, hey, this is the name by which God saves. This is Yahweh saves. This is Yeshua. This is Jesus. This is the one who purchased my life. This is the one who made himself known to me. This is the one who paid for my, my burden. I, I, I cannot speak his name. So those are just a couple of implications. But you see why like the name Jesus can draw such controversy is because of the exclusive natures of his, te- of his teaching. Um, he's like, you either accept me or you reject me. And what's interesting is in the next part, this is the part two, is if Jesus is the exclusive um, revealer and revelation of God, then he's also the one who gives us God's saving rest. Um, That is the the second part, verses 28 and 30, that he is the source of God's eternal rest. Um, Verse 28, beloved words, tender, like a shepherd. He says, come to me. Uh, All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If I may say something here, Jesus had no philosophical problem talking about the fact that getting who he is is a sovereign act of grace, He is in control, and at the same time, right next to it, putting an open invitation for people to make a choice and come to him. He had no problem. We have a problem with the idea that, well, God controls everything, so then I don't choose, and he's like, puts both of these right next to each other. I reveal to whomever I choose, and by the way, come to me. (laughs) Not a problem to fix for him. It's just a truth to embrace. So he opens it up to anybody. Come to me. And the ones who have had his grace open their heart will come. And he says, come to me, all you labor, and, and, and I will give you rest. And there's this contrast between like this sovereign, every all things have been handed over to me. At the same time, he's like this, this one who says he's gentle and lowly in heart. Those two extremes make him amazing. I mean, he's all all authoritative and powerful at the same time, he has this heart of, of gentleness and, and uh, lowliness. And that, that's really the heart of Yahweh even that's revealed in the Old Testament when he says that a, a bruised reed I will not break. I'm gentle. When one of my people is on the edge of, of breaking, I, I care for them. And Jesus is saying, this is me. This is I am the revelation of God, the one who is sovereign and yet um, gentle. You notice that word rest. I've, I've read this passage as a child and memorized it as a little cubby in Awana. And, and, uh, and uh, that word rest happens two times in that text. And I completely miss the enormity of what it means. When you just, you know, come to me, all you who are labored and so forth, and I will give you Rest. What Jesus is saying here, and using that four-letter word rest, is is something profound. It, It connects to a deep theme that is woven from the beginning to the end of the Bible. In Genesis, God creates the world in six days, and then on the seventh day, he what? Rested. And then set a pattern for his people. He said, listen, on the seventh day, I want you to cease toiling and cease laboring. I want you to experience a time of rest from the normal, stressful pressures of life. I want you to experience rest. The promised land that Joshua was to lead the people into and did was known as a place of blessing, a place of shalom, a place of peace, and a place of rest. a place where people were to find rest in the presence of God. Hebrews, near the end of the Bible, we're told that the author and finisher of our faith will lead us into our final rest in the new creation. There's this, this theme of rest that's woven its way from the beginning to the end of the Bible that's very important. It's that, that place that we all long to be and long to experience, you know? I mean, how many of you just, want, just wish you had like five minutes of rest sometimes or a day I there's so much clutter of activity and labor and toil under the sun. I mean, we pay enormous amounts of money to get in a plane and fly to some remote destination so we can have what? Rest. And I talk to people and they I just need I need to breathe. I need some rest because life is full of pressures and labors. You know, you... you <laughs> I look back over over the, the kind of the journey of my life and I realize, you know, the pressures don't get easier with time. They actually get more cumbersome with time, right? Which is why we look at our kids sleeping in their beds and sometimes you think, man, I wish I could be you. It's <laughs> like, go, know that mommy and daddy are going to take care of everything. don't have to worry about the power bill and changing the oil in the car, making sure the air conditioning's fixed so that mom can drive out and do what, you know, all this stuff, mow the lawn, get the roof fixed. There's just so much. You start adding up the different domains of stress that we have and pressures. You realize, you know, it's this constant labor and toil under the sun. Your work life, there's deadlines you have to keep. You feel the pressure of that. You have a boss maybe you don't like. You know, riding you at work and want you to do more. People you have to get along with. Then there's home. For a lot of people, home is a sanctuary. For other people, it's a place of tension, conflict. And there's parenting. When people told me that parenting doesn't stop after 18, (laughs) that was a depressing thought. (laughs) (laughs) There's the accumulation of pain, both emotional and physical, worries about the future and anxiety. And then down deep in every human being, there is this gnawing sense of personal failure. I'm a, I, I'm, I'm a dad and I do my best as a dad but I'm also a man who's failed and I feel that and I will and so will you. There's your mistakes and resentments, uh, regrets, that deep, deep sense of, of guilt that human beings feel, disconnection from each other and from God. I mean, all of us at the end of the day are really alone. Even our spouses don't really know what's really in our hearts. That gnawing sense. And to those who know that, who feel the labor of the world, Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you that rest. He is that rest and he promises that rest. How is it That he provides rest for us. I'll tell you what. He. There's only so many ways you can say it. But he took the cumulative weight. Of the burden of all of our failures. And the guilt that we feel as a result of those failures. And he straining under the weight of that barely made it to the cross on his own feet, and there he paid for it in full so that we don't have to bear that anymore, and he would reconnect us to what truly would make us whole and not alone anymore, and that's to his Father. He gives us rest because he's the supreme, sovereign revealer of the Father. He reconnects us to what gives us peace and what gives us rest. And then in that, he also promises to be with us. And shoulder the burden of life's chaos and and stuff. It's the realization and living with that realization that for us is the hard part. That when we became his and he bore the burden for us, he promised that he would bear the burden of your roof, your parenting, both the failures and successes. That he promised to be with us to the end of the age and he's not going to withdraw his protecting, providing hand from us. In him is this rest, this great rest for our souls. He says it a little more specifically when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He's not saying just learn about my example, although that would be implied, but in a context, he's learn of me because I am what God is like. In fact, I am God's revelation. And in knowing me and learning me, you will grow more restful in your soul as you come to rely fully and completely on the fact that that I am God's communication to you and connection to you. And the yoke that he offers to us that is light, that yoke is something that connects and constrains, you know, that horse, cart, yoke. He's saying, take my yoke upon you. That is, stay connected to me. That's part of it, connected to me. The moment you become disconnected and you, you, in a manner of speaking, de-yoke yourself and decide you want to live however you wish, well then, then you're not going to experience rest in your life. It's, it's, it's similar to what Jesus taught in, uh, in John chapter 15 when he says, Abide in the vine, abide in me, and you will bear fruit. Stay with me. Don't leave my presence. Like Stay close. Stay close to my teaching, close to my gospel, close to what I've, I've, I've bought for you. Immerse yourself in it, ponder it, live in it like, like a fish lives in water. Stay close to me and you'll experience rest for your souls. But it also is something that constrains because, because a, a horse yoked to a cart must go in the same direction. And if we're willing to walk where Jesus walks and we're willing to surrender our lives to the master as his disciples, then we're going to experience that peace in greater measures as as we head towards uh, the new creation. That's that yoke that he talks about. There's no peace in your life, no rest in your life. Chances are you've wandered from him or you've, quote unquote, de-yoked yourself from him and, and you're living your own life on your own terms saying, take my yoke upon you. And he says it's easy, and, and his burden is light. And, you know, you read the other teachings of Jesus, and you think, what in the world are you talking about? You said, you know, if you wanted me to follow you, I have to deny myself, take up the cross, and I have to follow you. That's not an easy thing. I have to do what you did. That isn't easy. In fact, the kind of the uh, instructions that Jesus gives for life are far more radical than those found in the law of Moses. So what does he mean by my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I I think it comes down to this, is that because he bore the burden, we're free. And in that freedom, we actually want his yoke on us. It's not hard to do work when it's for somebody that you love. It really isn't. um, Was it hard when you were dating your wife to go out and work and cut down trees or whatever you did and and then uh, save up enough money to take her out to, to a nice meal? No, it's like can't wait to go on a date. That work was a delight because of the end, and that is, that's part of it. It's like, when God wins your heart through his sacrifice, when Jesus wins your heart because of what he did, then, then, then his yoke is an easy one, because he wins your affection and your devotion through his love, and through his grace, and through his promises. I was talking to Debbie Bartholomus last week, and she said something that stuck with me, and she was here in the first service. You know, if you don't know, she's one of our amazing Sunday school teachers. She's been teaching. She taught all my kids. Um, And uh, I went and I asked her, I said, how how is uh, not being at Sunday school? Because she's, you know, caring for her husband in this season of life. And and, uh, I said, VBS was last week. Aren't you kind of glad that uh, you didn't have to do all that work? And she she just said, you know, it was never work to me. And why is that? And just reflected on it and thought, because you know, she loves the kids and she loves doing what the Lord wants her to do. That, that's, the, that's a light yoke because she loves Jesus and she loves the kids. When that happens, his, his yoke is very easy because we know that we're freed and we know he's with us and we love both him and we love what he loves and that makes the burden light. So I want to say, and I, I just want to kind of wrap this up this isn't all that the name of Jesus means but Jesus the person of Jesus is the revelation of God himself and he is the one in whom we find God's saving rest both now and someday and this part kind of blows me away too this comes out of Hebrews 4 someday just as Joshua son of noon in the Old Testament Led the people of Israel into the promised land, into the rest, and defeated their enemies. A rest which would not hold, by the way. So, a greater Joshua has come, a Yeshua. And he has given rest to our hearts now, and he's leading the charge into the promised land, and one day we will enter his rest, and he will be at the head of the caravan. And that's where we're headed. New Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. So I just want to simply ask, If if this morning I don't always do evangelistic things, but if you don't know Jesus, you know, it's one of those things, it's like, got to accept or reject. You never find a better love than that, a bigger, larger display of grace, and I would ask you, what's keeping you from surrendering to him? and embracing the fact that he took it for you. Today could be the most wonderful beginning of your life if you will not reject, but accept. And for the rest of us, this is just a constant reminder. Don't think you're going to find rest away from him. You only find rest in him and staying closely connected to him. So if you've drifted, this morning is the time to say, Jesus, bring me back. I want to be back in a place of rest. Let me pray for us. Pray for those souls, Lord, in here that are struggling with the question of Jesus and, and uh, whether to accept or reject. And I pray for courage and I pray for your grace. I pray that they would surrender and just let it go if they know it's true. And if not, maybe a different day. But we pray for your gracious hand to move today. And for my church family who is probably in different levels of connection with Jesus and communion with Jesus, I, I pray that you would help us to draw near to approach. To abide um, in the one who alone can give us rest, and make known to us the glory of God. Minister to no, to us now, Lord, as we respond back to you in worship in Christ's name. Amen.